Welcome to APAC forming political action committees to tighten grip on U.S. elections. My name is Grant Smith, Research Director at IRMEP. Since 2015, the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs and the Institute for Research Middle Eastern Policy have held Israel LobbyCon at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., to critique this country's powerful pro-Israel lobby. The annual conference typically occurs just before the annual meeting of the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, or APAC. And while in 2021, we didn't hold this popular conference in person, we've still been gathering with top experts online and you to focus on how to transcend harmful policy initiatives and work for better outcomes. Uh, we've called these sessions Israel LobbyCon Extra with the Extra online series not replacing our an annual conference, but rather providing ongoing timely analysis. And we hope to get back together March 3 and 4 of 2022, and we'll be talking a little bit more about that at the end. So today we're excited to host uh, our ninth Israel LobbyCon Extra webinar, APAC Forming Political Action Committees to Tighten Grip on U.S. Elections. Before we begin, I just wanted to do an important reminder. Uh, our conferences and webinars are works in which we ensure that our speakers, moderators, and attendees don't use these platforms to perpetuate racist or bigoted behaviors and practices. And our conference stands opposed to anti-Muslim, anti-Jewish, white nationalists, and other forms of racism and expressions of bigotry leveled at any person or group. We also reject the charge of anti-Semitism when it's used spuriously to silence legitimate criticism of Israel's policies and practices. Uh, for those of you who are joining us via Zoom, please feel free to send in your questions at any time, and we'll consolidate and ask them after uh, the main discussion. And to begin, we're going to have distinguished historian and author Walter L. Hickson uh, since 2019, he's served as a columnist and contributing editor at the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs. His two recent books on the Israel lobby are Architects of Repression, How Israel and Its Lobby Put Racism, Violence, and Justice at the Center of U.S. Middle East Policy, 2021, Institute for Research. And the other book is Israel's Armor, the Israel Lobby and the First Generation of the Palestine Conflict, Cambridge University Press, 2019. So he's here to give a short background on what the American Israel Public Affairs Committee is and does. Thank you, Grant. Great to be with you. Great to be with Janet McMahon and uh, everyone out there uh, on Zoom. So I'm going to, as Grant just said, give you an overview of the lobby, what it is, what it does, and why it's so essential to um, Israel and its behavior in world affairs. So the headline basically is that the Israel lobby is the largest and most pernicious 
lobby in all of American history. Nothing compares to it. Uh, that is lobby representing the interests of a foreign country, I should say. Uh, you can argue other lobbies are pernicious as well, but there's no lobby representing the interests of a foreign country that is remotely as powerful or, or as influential as the uh, Israel lobby. Uh, we're gonna talk a lot about dark money uh, today, but what we know about that's uh, transparent is that since World War II, the United States has given more American dollars to the tiny little nation, about 9 million people of Israel than any other country in the world. A total of 146 billion and currently 3.8 billion a year and distributed on an early dispersal method that no other country in the world. Um, so really the Israel lobby anchors and has long anchored the special relationship Kennedy announced between the United States and Israel, comparable Kennedy said only to the special relationship with Great Britain. But Great Britain doesn't have near the influence because of the powerful Israel lobby in the United States. So what is the lobby? Where did it come from? Uh, for more depth on that, um, I recommend the um, um, arcs of repression and a lot of detail and, and um, documents and documented uh, history there. But essentially, um, the lobby you might know of, uh, uh, certainly APAC is the largest lobby entity, but it's a, a much broader phenomenon than merely APAC. Another very important group is the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. There are Jewish federations all over the country, and there are many, many organizations, so far too many uh, to mention, not merely scores of them, possibly hundreds of organizations that you can uh, conceive of as the small L lobby. So there's not one capital L lobby, but if you were to select one, it would certainly be APAC, which is sort of the spearhead of uh, the lobby. Um, but there are myriad other Zionist organizations. So the lobby came about, the other book Grant mentioned that I did, uh, Israel's Armor. Armor was a term used by an early architect of the lobby in the early 50s, Louis Lipsky. And he said the lobby uh, or domestic propaganda in the United States was, quote, the armor Israel cannot live without. So why is this? Why does Israel need a massive propaganda machine in the United States? The reason is pretty simple. It's because Israel is a congenitally aggressive reactionary uh, settler colonial. Um, that's a handful, a mouthful, but let's unpack that a little. What I argue in Architects of Repression is that because after World War II, after the Nazi genocide, after the horror of the war, the UN was created and put a great deal of emphasis, of course, on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the rights of indigenous people. So unlike previous settler states, including the United States in the 19th century, Israel as a settler state in the second half of the 20th century, was up against a new and powerful discourse emphasizing human rights and uh, liberation for so-called colored people at the time throughout the world, including in the segregated United States. 
And yet Israel sought and has uh, succeeded in an apartheid state in which uh, Palestinians are second-class citizens since the, uh, certainly since the uh, partition of Israel, the 20% of Israel's population have been treated, that are Arab, have been treated as second-class citizens since the occupation in 1967, uh, the residents of the West Bank, which is gradually being taken over by 700,000 uh, settlers, um, while Israel has avoided a uh, so-called two-state solution. So one of the things the lobby's done is, is been to fend off peace. Uh, the peace process has been largely a farce uh, for decades. Uh, simply a propaganda rhetoric discourse used, well, meanwhile, enabling these illegal settlers to flood into this illegally occupied uh, territory in behalf of Israeli apartheid. So the role of the lobby is to distort this knowledge of the illegal settlement, the illegal occupation, the apartheid state, the blatant violation of human rights that um, Israel's expansion into the occupied territories and apartheid and its uh, own uh, UN-recognized territory represents. How does it do this? Well, um, in the beginning, the most important thing in, in the beginning, when is the beginning? Well. You can go all the way back to the beginning of the 19th or 20th century, coinciding with the Zionist global, the global Zionist movement. And there was a growth of uh, what you might call an early lobby in the World War I period. But I really see takeoff point as the 1942 Biltmore Conference in New York, where they really began uh, to organize a, a very coherent, very well-organized very well-funded, and what has been an extremely successful lobby in the United States. The State Department, as I detail in Israel's Armor and, and also in Architects of Repression, sought an actual balanced foreign policy in the Middle East. And many presidents, most presidents, even presidents who were highly favorable to Israel, like Truman and even Johnson, uh, perhaps not Trump, who didn't find anything to object to in Israel's behavior, but all the other presidents did. And the lobby was always quick to jump in to combat either the State Department or the chief executive of the United States from impeding this settler colonial apartheid state uh, and illegal occupation. How did it do that? It did that with propaganda, with uh, organizing demonstrations, creating a very influential newsletter in the late 1950s was the time that APAC was formed. There were many predecessors to APAC, but about the turn of the 50s to the 60s, APAC became the central organization. And the Near East Report, an extremely effective newsletter uh, created by one of the early architects of the lobby, in fact, the chief early architect, a man named Isaiah Kennan, so the Near East report was highly effective. Demonstrations, uh, lettering campaigns, targeting members of Congress for defeat in subsequent elections or funding and supporting, and we'll talk a lot more about that today, um, pro-Israel politicians. So whenever something came up, for example, and there are many examples of this, but the first George Bush uh, tried to 
to bring a halt to settlements in order to fuel a peace process. In the early 90s, a massive demonstration was called in Washington. Uh, myriad uh, Zionist organizations uh, attended. It was a huge demonstration, and it, uh, it effectively uh, stymied this effort. Very typical of what the lobby does and how it operates. There are also myriad think tanks in Washington, like the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. This think tank, for example, masquerades as a objective academic think tank. It's merely an arm of the Israel lobby. It's a pro-Israeli think tank that uh, gets high exposure. Uh, junkets are organized for members of Congress. So um, that's the critical point that uh, needs to be made here in this introduction. Israel effectively owns the U.S. Congress. Since uh, the post-war period, really, Israel found that by targeting, rewarding, punishing members of Congress, it could effectively control. Control Congress, and it does. It controls the U.S. Congress. There's also a great deal of media policing. So uh, I'll conclude here in the next couple of minutes. There's a lot more in the book, a lot more we could talk about. Uh, in recent times, one of the most uh, concerning aspects of, of Israel and its lobby's behavior is the targeting of free speech. Uh, it's Israel and the lobby are not content to repress Palestinian rights and to enable violence and a whole series of massacres and brutal repression over decades uh, of, of Palestinians, but are targeting Americans and attempting to uh, take away the right to free speech, wielding uh, and weaponizing anti-Semitism, attacking with lawfare, constitutional rights. So the lobby uh, is has myriad tactics and you, you uh, might canary list and see that they'll target students, target critical academics. Um, the academy, journalists, mainstream media have done a rotten poor job of exposing the lobby and um, it has to be done uh, by people like us and, um, and others uh, who are exposing all this rather sordid uh, history. So in conclusion, uh, some deny that the lobby is that H Street to visit the lobby headquarters. Uh, you'll see, and Grant will up an illustration here, that um, there's no sign on the place. It doesn't say APAC. There I am outside of the H Street headquarters. It's been dramatically expanded in recent years. There's a billboard showing the expansion. Uh, its personnel have increased dramatically in recent years, and they have plan. leave you with a question. Why would they be expanding their office space dramatically, expand personnel dramatically, if they didn't, as some ill-informed critics have suggested, have a great deal of influence and intend to continue to have a great deal of influence? So lobby is real. The lobby is pernicious. It's uh, the most pernicious, as I say, representing a foreign country in all of American history. It needs to be exposed. It needs to be broken so that we can have justice in Palestine as well as uh, democracy in the United States and the liberation of the People's House, the Congress of the United States. Okay, Walter, thank you uh, for that. We're going to 
now turn to Janet McMahon of the Washington Report uh, on Middle East Affairs. One of the key things that the Washington Report has been doing for decades is uh, reports on the rise and activities of pro-Israel political action committees, uh, in particular their donations to congressional candidates. So as the former managing editor and a founder, uh, founding editor of the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs, Janet's gonna give a little bit of background on that. Janet? Hi Grant, thanks. And welcome everyone, glad you could join us today. I'm gonna to be discussing basically the history and strategy behind these political action committees. And I first became, in, I first encountered them in the late uh, 1980s and early 1990s. And it was actually quite a boring experience because I was helping the Washington Report's then news editor, Parker Payson, proofread his compilations of all these donations. And it went something like this. Pro-Israel PAC number one contributed to candidates A, B, C, and D. And pro-Israel PAC number two also contributed to candidates A, B, C, and D. And pro-Israel PAC number three also contributed to candidates A, B, C, and D, and so on. And at that time, there were 78 pro-Israel PACs. So it's an extremely repetitious experience. But it did make clear what the pattern was, that these PACs all gave to the same congressional candidates virtually, with a few exceptions and you know, geographical adjustments. But it was obvious that that could not have been a coincidence, that there had to be some coordination behind that. And that coordination was made evidence in a 1986 memo by Elizabeth Strayer, who was then APAC's Assistant Director of Political Affairs. And whoops, that's, yes. So here the memo is that you can see on the screen. And I'll just read the first couple of instructions. ICEPAC, which was based in New York, has done nothing in the Colorado, Louisiana, and Missouri race. Try for $1,000 to Bond, Moore, Evans, Daschle, and Reed. None of those candidates represented New York. The second item is the Connecticut PAC did not get involved in Louisiana, gave nothing to Daschle and $1,000 to Evans as of 6-30-86. And again, neither Daschle nor Evans represented Connecticut. And there's another, going to the 21st century, another example is the current Senator from uh, Maryland, Benjamin Cardin. In 2012, he received $55,680 from pro-Israel PACs, but none of those came from the Maryland Association for Concerned Citizens, which donated only to out-of-state candidates. And I, I always thought it was very strange that they wouldn't even have a veneer of local concern for their own candidates that they only gave to out-of-state candidates. So I'm gonna just read a couple of sentences from the forward to stealth packs, which written by the late founding editor of the Washington Report, Richard Curtis. Federal law limits a PAC contribution to no more than $5,000 per candidate in the primary election 
and another $5,000 in the general election. Therefore, no PAC, even the giants named above, can donate more than $10,000 in a single election year. What would happen, however, if between 50 and 100 like-minded PACs followed recommendations of one special interest group, such as APAC? And that's exactly what is going on in this situation. Another thing that's apparent from the list of contributions is that these PACs have very innocuous names. None of them, or very few of them, mention Israel. And I'll just read a couple from the appendix in stealth PACs. These are from the largest on down. National PAC, Washington PAC, Joint Action Committee for Political Affairs, Citizens Organized PAC, Desert Caucus PAC, Hudson Valley PAC, there's no way you would know what their agenda is. So the idea is that they are not visible, that the public, Americans are not aware of the activities of these PACs. However, they all do have to report to the Federal Election Commission. And so their secrecy is limited. If you know what the names of the PACs are, if you know who the pro-Israel PACs are, you can find out who they're giving to, how much they're giving, and uh, a lot of information that they'd rather you not have. And Washington Report has been tracking those PACs for 30 years. But over the years, their influence, they used to be a major contributor to candidates, and now they're described more as a tip of the iceberg. And the lobby is, is relying more on fundraising and bundling. An example of that is the former representative from Alabama, Earl Hilliard, who was not, in fact, not only was he not sufficiently pro-Israel, he was a little bit critical of Israel. So the lobby and these pro-Israel PACs gave a lot of money to a candidate named Arthur Davis, who was also African-American in Alabama. And he was taken, brought up to the APAC annual conference by a supporter in Alabama, a Jewish supporter, and then had fundraisers in New York and raised over $300,000 in a very short period of time, 75% of which came from New York donors. Now, I went to high school in the suburbs of New York, and I can tell you that we were not terribly concerned with the representative of the poorest voting district in the country, which happened to be in Alabama. So once again, there's the coordination and now it's becoming more behind the scenes too. But I think it's also, what's also happening in recent years is APAC is not as invincible as it once liked to portray itself. Now, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was a surprise to the lobby, but Elliot Engels, being in trouble was not a surprise. And he was a, a major supporter of Israel and he was chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. So a very powerful position. And the lobby knew he was in trouble and they poured tens of thousands of dollars into his campaign and he was defeated nevertheless. So I'll just conclude by saying that for the past 30 years or so, I've always been telling people APAC does not contribute money to political candidates because people think if you say that someone is getting money from the Israel lobby, it means they're getting money from APAC and it does not, it has not. It means they've been getting money from these smaller political action committees. But it looks like a major change is in the works and this is something that Grant is going to discuss and explain to us.
All right. Thank you very much, Janet. Um, I'm going to repeat a little bit of what you said, because I think there are three main reasons that APAC is directly forming a PAC and a super PAC right now. And there have also been some uh, details that have leaked out, which really reveal what the game plan is going to be. So I think, you know, one of the things you saw in the Schreyer memo that Janet uh, put up was the coordination that APAC once attempted to do by signaling to pro-Israel political action committees, you know, how to get the money to the right candidate and the races that mattered, you know, send the money out of your state into this state. Uh, better coordination via a new PAC directly run by APAC will mean electing more U.S. politicians who will advance Israel's interests from within the U.S. government. I mean, that's the game plan. And I think the loss, as Janet mentioned, uh, of Elliot Engel, 54.4% uh, of the votes went to his uh, competitor, Jamal Bowman, and he got 406 You know, Democrat majority for Israel PAC, as Janet said, poured money into that race but it wasn't particularly well coordinated or timely enough to prevail. And Engel was just a devastating blow to APAC because he was such a rubber stamp for the agenda. According to reporting over at Mondo Weiss, Engel once bragged, quote, I sit down with APAC on every single piece of legislation coming out of the Foreign Affairs Committee, unquote. So, you know, that's the kind of politician APAC lights. But there are other races as well. Uh, Ohio's 11th district, uh, Chantel Brown only beat Nina Turner by a 5% margin in the special primary for the U.S. House District 11. Uh, they could have easily lost the election. They were doing quite poorly behind Chantel Brown early on. And if not for a flood of pro-Israel donations, particularly from Republicans, as reported by The Intercept, who were channeling donations through Democratic majority for Israel, they could have easily lost that race as well. And Nina Turner had some very strong uh, human rights-oriented positions that would have made APAC's lobbying of Congress difficult. Um, so, you know, I think it's key right now to mention some of these hints about how this is going to work. Uh, according to some reports, Marilyn Rosenthal, who's APAC's progressive engagement director, remember that word progressive, will lead the political action committee. So under federal election commission disclosure forms, there'll be a lot of Democrats and progressives presumably herded by Marilyn to donate, and then they'll all be publicly reported on in the media as endorsing pro-Israel candidates and signaling this grand progressive initiative, which is support for Israel. Uh, and I say that in quotes too. I just didn't get my air quotes up in time. So that may help keep the candidates in line. And even as the Democratic base, which polling shows, would like to cut U.S. foreign aid to Israel and hold Israel accountable, they'll be able to parade all of these donors based on FEC reporting uh, if Maryland succeeds. 
The other key detail that's come out is that APAC's political director, Rob Basson, will reportedly lead the APAC super PAC so that that will allow APAC's new dark money entity, which won't disclose donors, to keep that Republican and anonymous Israel affinity money flowing into probably mostly Democratic Party races. So you've got this dual track strategy of kind of revealing all of this progressive Democratic donor support for Israel and then hiding what's really going on and what will probably be much more significant uh, in terms of campaign money. So from what we can see, this is all to get aligned and coordinated in APAC's effort to present what is a false narrative of vast uh, Democratic Party grassroots support for ongoing massive subsidies to Israel and diplomatic support. None of that exists at the base of the party. And it's really important that APAC is a lobby for a foreign government to make it appear that way. So it may also be a bit of jealousy. Um, you know, APAC has lost some of its relevancy. It was Democratic Majority for Israel, which was at the forefront of channeling funds into the preferred uh, Israel lobby candidate. And it is true that they've also kind of been poaching some of APAC and their uh, uh, junkets to Israel, American Israel Education Fund organization. You know, the Schusterman family, which has long been a giant donor to the American Israel Education Foundation, which supports the giant grassroots uh, lobbying day at APAC's conference every year and the junkets to Israel. Well, they've been giving to Democratic majority for Israel. So APAC uh, is probably feeling a little bit of competitive angst that while they've been not doing lobbying day for two years because of COVID, that uh, more nimble competitors are sweeping in and getting ahead in the PAC game. So APAC may feel it needs to be more directly involved in electoral politics to be relevant. I mean, if you look at how clumsy the Schreyer memo is with, hey, let's get these nickel and dimes to each of these politicians, you know, that's clearly, you know, that's clearly not tenable anymore. APAC has published candidate guides and scorecards, but you know, nothing beats wiring the money into the local political races. So uh, that's one reason. I think the other reason, though, is keeping elected officials in line. Um, increasing numbers of Congress or members of Congress are imposing APAC and Israeli government initiatives in Congress. And to APAC, that's just not acceptable. Uh, Kentucky Republican Thomas Massey has openly and accurately, in my view, called APAC a foreign influence when APAC was running Facebook ads against him for not voting an extra billion dollars of taxpayer funds into emergency funding for Israel's Iron Dome missile system. Massey said, quote, how is this not foreign influence in our elections? Unquote. And he then joined nine Democrats in blocking or opposing that extra funding. Uh, Senator Rand Paul blocked passage of the billion dollar extra Iron Dome funding in the Senate four times. Uh, that's clearly not acceptable to APAC. 
Uh, Minnesota Betty McCall, Minnesota Representative Betty McCollum called APAC ads uh, representative of a hate group that was weaponizing anti-Semitism to silence debate. APAC doesn't like that kind of pushback when it's launching these smear campaigns online. And it probably sees the need to win back its former reputation, which Walter and Janet can talk about, of being able to easily knock off elected officials who step out of line as it did in the past. So I think keeping elected officials in line is certainly uh, the second reason that APAC is jumping into the PAC game now. But the third, I think, is that APAC's agenda and its ability to deliver the goods is under serious question. And I mentioned that in an article that was published uh, at the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs this week called APAC Forming Political Action Committees to Tighten Grip on U.S. Elections. The subhead was the Abraham Accords, if you look closely, are falling apart. And so the Abraham Accords are a new Israel lobby program that seeks to exchange U.S. formal recognition of land grabs, very similar to Israel's land grabs, and huge weapon sales in exchange for Arab country diplomatic recognition and economic ties for Israel. Uh, that's the core plan within the so-called Abraham Accords. The first Abraham Accord had the corny sort of carnival barker-like name of deal of the century, and it failed. Uh, it was an attempt to disenfranchise Palestinians by getting them to relinquish their rights and lands for vague economic benefits. There were charts and proposals, and it flopped miserably because there was nothing in it for the Palestinians. It wasn't a rights-based approach. Uh, another Abraham Accord is the Israel-Morocco Abraham Accord, which depends on official U.S. recognition of annexed land in the Western Sahara and is rightfully facing international backlash. Uh, Sudan's Abraham Accord to recognize Israel uh, is also falling apart. Like all of the Abraham Accords, uh, it's hugely unpopular with the populace of the country. Uh, I recommend people take a look at our extra session on the Abraham Accords and public opinion as polled across the entire region. Arab public opinion is against any sort of accords with Israel until they satisfy the issues of uh, the Palestinians. And so Sudan's no different. It's uh, been stymied really mostly because of Sudan's military coup. So the idea that the U.S. is going to be pushed by APAC to continue striking this Abraham Accord is, uh, is in doubt right now as the country is in doubt. But certainly the biggest and uh, worst from the standpoint of APAC, Abraham Accord blowout is with the United Arab Emirates. So at the end of the Trump administration, the sale of American F-35 jet fighters to UAE was an explicit part of the deal for Israeli recognition by UAE, which chafed under the idea that it wasn't even getting the advanced version of the fighter jet, which of course Israel got for itself, 
Uh, and along with mounting U.S. diplomatic conditions placed on the sale, like not installing Huawei equipment in their network because it's made in China, UAE just announced that rather than go through this as a key portion, again, of the Abraham Accord, it's going to purchase $18 billion of Rafale jets, fighter jets, and other aircraft from France. And UAE's suspension of F-35 talks with Washington has just been a knockout punch to the Abraham Accords and Lockheed Martin, which wanted to sell $23 billion uh, in this uh, whole effort. Um, but the thing that's really interesting is what nobody's really reporting on, well, with the exception of the Washington report on Middle East affairs, that is, which has been reporting on it. And that is what some Abraham subcom, uh, subcomponents are. In particular, uh, down at the ground level, a private Israeli inland aquaculture firm, Aquamouth, which was standing in line to get $25 million in county, state, and federal subsidies, in order to launch this mega project down in Virginia. So the Aquamouth plan was launched when APAC sent some local political officials and county officials on a junket to Israel back in 2013, 2014, chose an Israeli company to run in a tilapia farm. They're gonna produce hundreds of jobs and investment in an economically depressed area of Virginia. And, you know, Aquamouth never really had any demonstrated competency to run a massive tilapia farm, but they switched then to salmon and managed to line up a deal with an investment bank and Pure Salmon based in UAE to promote the project and provide capital. Well, all of that has been blown out of the water with the announcement that Pure Salmon is going to go kind of like uh, the UAE Air Force with a French or formerly French recirculating aquaculture vendor, Veolia, which then broke off relations and the Aquamoff deal and the investment part of it from UAE is in limbo. Um, it's not... Uh, inaccurate to say that this was a key Virginia-Israel advisory board, which is like a little APEC ensconced in the uh, Virginia government uh, project down there. And the fact that it's uh, come out um, and been torn apart uh, is a big problem. And now it looks like war because in seeming retaliation, Israel's Environmental Protection Ministry just announced that it would block movement of UAE oil from an Israeli port to the Mediterranean. You know, this doesn't look like sudden environmental concern. It looks like the collapse of the Abraham Accords. And that's, you know, for the Abraham Accords to work, APAC has to be able to lobby as effectively for UAE, Sudan, and Morocco as it does for Israel's government. But it's not showing any capability to do that. And so the bottom line is that lobbying on behalf of the Abraham Accords is really in reality expanding a list of foreign government clients in addition to Israel. Uh, and that's been a key item on APAC's 2021 legislative agenda. It's kind of like the sleight of hand 
that allows APAC uh, to say, hey, we're not actually lobbying for the Israeli government, we're lobbying for the US-Israel relationship. The Abraham Accords are a way for them to lobby for UAE, lobby for Sudan, Morocco, you know, as long as they're complying with Israeli policy demands uh, and pull the same sort of sleight of hand that uh, has been in place with the whole idea that they only lobby for the relationship. H.R. 2748, the Israel Relations Normalization Act of 2021 and its Senate counterpart have a list of various things the U.S. government has to do to promote these so-called peace accords, which are in reality ways for Israel to benefit economically and in other ways through enhanced bilateral relations while sort of transcending the whole rights-based Palestinian peace negotiations. So, uh, you know, this is just the third part. Unless APAC becomes more relevant, billions of dollars for Israel and its U.S. surrogate lobbies, like in Virginia, uh, will be lost. And unless APAC becomes more powerful, it won't be able to do things for Israel, like keep the U.S. bogged down in Syria, sanctioning and attacking Iran, or rubber stamping Israeli land grabs, like in the West Bank, that it wasn't able to get from the Trump administration. So those are three reasons I think APAC is doing this now as a long-term observer of APAC's operations in the United States. And I can see that uh, we've got a number of uh, points that we've all made. Maybe we can sort of reflect on this a little bit uh, and then go into Q&A. So one thing that I wanted to just sort of add um, to the discussion, and I think it's really relevant. Um, when uh, Walter was speaking, he mentioned APAC's founder, Isaiah L. Kennan. Isaiah L. Kennan, uh, even while he was still a registered foreign agent for the Israeli Ministry of Foreign Affairs, made it clear, you know, when he was forming APAC and taking overseas money to fund his lobbying newsletter, he made it clear that APAC was really, uh, it really existed to do two things. The first was that Israel needed arms, and the second was that Israel needed money. That's why he formed APAC. None of these things have anything to do with the United States. None of these things have anything really to do with uh, supporting a relationship because there was really no relationship at the time it was formed. So I think it's incredibly important to mention not only that, uh, but the fact that in 1962, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee was part of a lobbying organization that because it was channeling so much foreign money into lobbying Congress and propagandizing the American public was ordered by the Justice Department to register as an Israeli foreign agent. And that's why APAC exists in its present form to this date. It split off six weeks later, incorporated, and now we're still sort of dealing with APAC and its efforts on behalf of Israel's government to this day. So Walter, Janet, I don't know if you wanted to jump in with any more observations or if we should just go to Q&A. 
Well, well I have. Um, a, go ahead, Walter. Go ahead, Janet. Well, I was interested in the idea that APAC is going to try and publicly identify progressive supporters. And uh, do you think that's a risky move on APEC's part? I mean, are progressives going to want to say, yes, put me down, you know, let the world know that I'm supporting, that I'm contributing to APAC, or is that, could that backfire? No, I mean, they've been trying it on well, Twitter For those forever. who don't know. Um, you, you see, just, just, just to talk a little bit about that point, there are constantly people coming up on Twitter saying, you know, I support the APAC agenda and I'm a progressive. Democratic majority for Israel. The name is there. They may receive a bunch of GOP money, but you know the the effort is really to show and name names and be out there yeah. as I'm a progressive and I am pro-Israel and I'm going to donate to making sure we have good candidates. That's part of the agenda right now. So no, I know. It, <laughs> you know. There's also an organization called the Progressive Israel Network, which is know. like. Partners for Progressive Israel, J Street is a member. But right. I'm just, I mean, I would think that people like AOC or Rashida Tlaib would not, I mean, they're candidates, but with people who support them? It's a really interesting question. And would they take the money? That's another yeah. interesting question. So, I mean, you know, it, 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 uh, it remains to be seen. Some of this is speculative. It wasn't APAC who announced, as far as I know, these two directors that came out from some digging by other reporters. Walter, you're going to jump in. Yeah, uh, I was just going to say, um, you know, the defeat of, of Ingle is, is um, you know, Janet rightly pointed out, was a major loss for APAC and may have spurred some of this rethinking. Uh, on the other hand, um, it illustrates how they work. So they uh, keep very careful records of every member of Congress. And when a new member comes into Congress, they immediately target them. So for example, Bowman, who, who ends up winning that election in New York, ends up posing with Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, who likes to brag about how many Arabs he has killed in his life, uh, in Israel. So he's taken over on one of these junkets. And so they work very hard to incorporate, you know, it might be useful to differentiate. I don't know whether it is or not, but uh, we could just for purposes of explaining liberals and progressives. Uh, people like Tlaib, no, they're not going to win over. But many liberals, perhaps like Bowman, uh, APAC will try very hard to win them over uh, through the junkets, through the propaganda, through the funding. Um, you know, very illustrative of this was uh, someone familiar to everyone, Mitch McConnell. When Mitch McConnell ran for the Senate in Kentucky the first time, he barely defeated the incumbent. Uh, D. Huddleston was his name. And Mitch went straight to, the, to APAC and said, well, you supported the Democrat against me, but I won. What do I have to do in the future to get your support? And they said, well, just be pro-Israel in all your votes, Mitch. And uh, he has done that ever since and been repeatedly reelected. So it's, it's a very powerful entity. It's very well organized. And uh, even when they lose, as with Engel, they, uh, they rally quickly. And that's probably what this reorganization is, is about. And also McConnell is the largest recipient of pro-Israel PAC contributions in the Senate by far. Now it's, it's really interesting how, you know, I guess we could add, it's not just 
the goal then to elect the pro-Israel candidate over the one who may, you know, be more interested in human rights and uh, that sort of thing, but also make the existing candidates as bad as they possibly can be when it comes to this and try to pull them back. I mean, Bowman in particular has certainly been chastised for, you know, his recent moves. And it it's happened before. You see candidates that, uh, you know, seem to have some very uh, positive views just being rounds down. Uh, you know, you can hear on some of the podcasts that uh, when AOC has to explain some of her moves, critics describe it as a word salad. She has real, really no answers. So she just kind of talks and talks and talks about listening to both sides and that sort of thing. So I think the grinding down will be a lot easier with massive super PACs attacking candidates, you know, not necessarily only during elections, but whenever they possibly can. And I would say that, uh, you know, APAC, there's been some pushback against it, but if it can begin to channel a significant amount of funding into this endeavor, there's just no telling what impact it'll have. One question that came in via email was, how much is spent yearly to maintain Israel's position in the U.S.? And how much could go into APAC super PACs, and PACs? Well, in my book, Big Israel, I quantified the amount is $6 billion per year going into so-called charitable Israel affinity ecosystem organizations that were purely nonprofits. What's interesting is that BlackBoud, which is a cloud computing nonprofit contribution platform, which collects a lot of financial data and then also does donor surveys, has said that, you know, you really have to think about charitable contributions as a way uh, that Americans promote their interests. And they find a, a huge correlation between what people do in charitable contributions and what they do in candidate support. So, you know, I, I, the, the really important thing I, I think from a quantitative aspect in answering that question is that APAC, uh, if it's kind of thinking about the total market uh, and all of the dollars that it could bring into its super PAC and PAC operations, it's probably close to another $6 billion. All they have to do is effectively reach out to that existing pool of donors and become sort of the filter through which that money flows and tout their own ability to, you know, pick off candidates and promote the Israeli government's agenda in the United States. So I think if you have to look at it, we're really talking about a $6 billion market potential for that PAC money. It seems like an incredibly large amount of money, but uh, I do believe that the correlation between charitable contributions from the Israel Affinity ecosystem of mainly 501c3 organizations could easily fit into uh, this world that APAC wants to construct going forward. Grant, um... I'd like to make a point just about the one of the well, in response to one of the questions, too, uh, was what about the Arab lobby? And so, 
you know, to the extent there's an Arab lobby, it's like a mouse compared to the elephant of APAC and its affinity groups. There is no comparable Arab, pro-Arab lobby to the power of APAC and the Israel lobby. Um, if there could be constructed uh, such a lobby, or, or if, if we had $6 billion, um, you know, the, the truth is on the side of critics of Israel and the lobby. I, and we can't, I don't think, say that too much. And if we could make that case to the public with a well-funded uh, you know, lobby to contain Israel, um, we can make the essential points, which are this. Are you in favor of racism and apartheid? If you are, you should support Israel in the lobby. Are you in favor of giving money to the by far most developed and most powerful military in the Middle East already, which is engaged in massacres and indiscriminate war? If you are, you should support Israel in the lobby. Are you in favor of stifling democracy and free speech? If you are, you should support Israel in the lobby. So it's a, such a powerful entity that it obscures all of these very essential points. I mean, these are the essence of the conflict. That's what the lobby was created to do. That's what it does. And that's what has to be unpacked. Yeah, I think that's the ultimate cause for optimism, really, is that the truth is the lobby's and Israel's Achilles heel. That's it. They're vulnerable. Ultimately, they're vulnerable. That's why they exist. Yeah. 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 The lobby. So someone's asking, can you explain the difference between PACs, super PACs, and dark money and how the lobby utilizes each type of organization? You know, I think you know, that's a key question. Super PACs can raise unlimited amounts of money from corporations, unions, uh, associations, individuals, and then they can spend unlimited amounts of money uh, to advocate for and against candidates. And so, you know, super PACs, they can't contribute the money to the candidates, but they can spend it in that election to what they view as the very best advantage. And if you look at the behavior of some traditional super PACs, um, you know, American Crossroads, 527 super PAC, uh, they're a kind of the uh, key example of that. And so they're, they've been very influential. They've funneled just enormous amounts of money into races. And this is um, something that uh, none of the donors are disclosed. So that is the beauty of the super PAC. And if, you know, Democratic majority for Israel is funneling all this GOP money into Democratic races, you can bet that an APAC dark money pack would be doing that exponentially. So, you know, the other thing is um, when they file their 501c4 IRS form 990 with the uh, IRS, you know, I'm like Janet, I got to read all this stuff. Uh, <laughs> Crossroads. Uh, actually files a specific page threatening the IRS. It, it reads that none of these donors' names may be publicly disclosed under threat, and then they cite some laws. Uh, you can bet APAC is going to do that as well. You know, the donor information uh, that goes into the IRS is uh, blanked out by uh, the IRS. Nobody can see those donors. You can see amounts. I mean, the amounts are somewhat useful. If you look at APAC's own 
contributions. It's a very thinly funded organization with very large contributions coming from less than 3,000 significant, meaningful donors. So, you know, if you had to change APAC's name, you might call it the 3,000 or something like that. It's, uh, you know, so, but the whole goal here is to project this idea that there's this overwhelming American support for all these retrograde policies that Walter mentioned, when in fact they're not. That's that's the magician's trick that uh, takes place. So then, you know, the difference uh, between that and the PACs is, uh, is that the, the PACs do have to uh, disclose to the FEC who the donors are. And that's why I think it's such an interesting development that kind of the head of progressive engagement is going to be in charge of that. Um, <laughs> As Janet mentions, is it going to work? We'll have to see. All right. Should we take some of these other questions coming in here? Um, so Jan Miller uh, is asking, I guess this one's for you, Janet. Where can we go to find our representatives' campaign contributions from APAC? Well, until now, there were no contributions from APAC. <laughs> So you have to go down to the FEC, and this is what, how we compile our figures, and then you look up the records of every pack, and then you put them all together, and you pick out you know, which candidates got contributions from which packs. And it's very laborious, let's say. Yeah. I think yeah. you, can, maybe you can do more on computers now. But, and then I'd say another very good resource is opensecrets.org which is the website for the Committee for Responsive Politics, I think. And you, they have a whole section on, they call it an industry, one of many, but pro-Israel. And it includes individual countries. It includes a lot more than just PACs. And you can get a good picture of really the extent of their reliance on the, on the lobby, basically. So I'd recommend that website as well. All right. Uh, I've got one from uh, Dr. Mustafa who's asking, uh, APAC really reminds me of the National Rifle Association in terms of strength, reach, money, and influence. Do you know if there's any link between the two since NRA is only active in what Israel loves most, arms? Anyone got anything on that? I, I don't, um, Grant, um, but... You know, the gun lobby is often mentioned along with big pharma. APAC is right up there with those. But and it's so for a foreign country. Yeah. <laughs> NRA is represents a foreign country. Absolutely. That's the amazing thing about it. Uh, so it um, and what, again, is very uh, upsetting is that some people deny its influence. Uh, go look at the building on H Street, see this billions that they spend. And it's a foreign country influencing much the way the gun lobby and big pharma do. All right. Um, I think this is a good question. I don't know if it's uh, for real at this point, um, but so Alec is asking, uh, he, I think he's feeding back a question. APAC support of Israel is criminal because Israel is an apartheid state. Can you explain how it's apartheid? Uh, Walter, you want to take a shot at that? Well, it's uh, I, I gave the essential explanation that the 20% of Israel's 
UN recognized borders population are Arab and they are uh, subjected to racism. They do have voting rights in theory. They're subjected to racism and second-class citizenship in any number of ways that you need to read my or many other books to, to be able to understand all the ways that happens. But the apartheid nature is certainly underscored by a couple of things. Unfortunately, Occupy territories, uh, blatantly illegal under international law, and the so-called settlement, using that benign term, it's very violent quite often, and utterly contemptuous of uh, human rights of the indigenous people in the West Bank. Um, by incorporating those people and taking over their lands, that makes Israel an apartheid state because they don't have any rights and are subjected to brutal uh, repression. But beyond that, Israel uh, has proclaimed itself an apartheid state in essence because in 2018, the basic law, the Jewish state law, says Israel is a Jewish state uh, that uh, instantly marginalized that 20% of, of the uh, Arab population, their second-class citizens, under the Jewish state law, uh, or Hebrew is the official language, and other provisions. Um, and so even the, um, the Israeli human rights organization, Beth Salem, uh, asked the, would request the questioner uh, look up Beth Salem, the Israel human rights organization, and read their report, what uh, organizations that Israel is an apartheid. The editor of Haaretz, Israeli newspaper, has acknowledged that Israel is an apartheid state. It's an apartheid state. Yeah, I've got a couple comments about that, if I may, which is one, I think it's fascinating that that Palestinians constitute 20% of Israeli citizens, not counting the ones who are under occupation. African Americans are only 12% by comparison of, of US citizens. So this is not a small percentage of citizens who are being discriminated against. And the other point I wanted to make is that. Archbishop Desmond Tutu and John Dugard, the justice who's a UN special rapporteur and is South African, have both said, among others, that the situation in Palestine is worse than apartheid South Africa. Yeah, so I would just add to that. I was scrolling through uh, our conference from this year, which was an online event, israelapartheid.org, israelapartheidcon.org, of all those great speeches and presentations from John Dugard, from uh, just a, a wealth of experts about the reports and facts on the ground. So it's kind of a mini seminar for Alec to go in there, www.israelapartheidcon.org and, and get up to speed on, on recent developments. So uh, we've got a, a very piercing question from Michael. It says, what advantages can be gleaned from this reorganization for APAC's opponents? The dark money pack certainly sounds foreboding, but are there any silver linings? I just want to mention one, moderator's prerogative. You know, if you begin to see even more money pouring in to support this endeavor, you know, if it really is $12 billion or more in coming years, it's pretty obvious that that amount of money is needed uh, to push uh, policies that otherwise would not be implemented. So the whole effort in and of itself is indicative of how it's 
really against uh, common sense, the popular will. You don't spend $12 billion pushing on an open door. This is one of the interesting things in Walter's book. There's so many uh, sort of canards out there from people who have tried to analyze what the lobby does. And probably the biggest of them all is that, well, the Israel lobby never pushes any policy that the U.S. You know, didn't agree to initially. We're, we're always pushing against open doors or open doors. And that is so absolutely false um, that this will underscore how false that narrative is. You don't need to spend $12 billion pushing open open doors. So I, I think that's one of the silver linings. Walter, you're going to say something? Um, I mean, it's, it's a, a minority of people, um, mostly uh, wealthy Orthodox Jews, some Christian Zionists contribute massive amounts of, of funding, mainly the, the a few uh, Orthodox Jewish donors. A lot of mainstream, uh, particularly liberal Jews in this country, are more critical. They, groups like J Street haven't gone nearly as far as they need to go, but they at least oppose the settlements, at least uh, verbally and discourse. Um, so it's, it's um, you know, there are a lot of people out there like Alec, the questioner, who, so what do you mean Israel's an apartheid state? If they get that knowledge and, and it's getting out there, it's, it's percolating, it's happening, uh, Americans are going to be shocked and angered uh, that a small minority of, of people uh, are funding this lobby, which is uh, manipulating American policy. We really haven't talked much about Iran, but there's... Um, you know, there's a strong, Israel would like a war with Iran, really that simple, and is pushing the United States toward a, a war in the Middle East before the dust has even settled in Afghanistan. So again, it's a very pernicious lobby representing the interests of a, a foreign state, and it, it really is uh, um, driven by a, a small number of extremely wealthy people. So uh, Wally asks, does the IRS question the donations of billions of dollars to certain candidates? Um, I think the question better phrased would be, does the IRS question the billions of dollars donated to friends, American Friends of Israel organizations? The IRS is not uh, in charge of candidate donations. Um, you know, the super PAC disclosures that the IRS does get, every single one of them is going to say, we did not coordinate with, we did not give money to candidates. You know, the difference is pretty insignificant. If you go into a market with a $100 million media buy to support pro-Israel candidate X versus human rights candidate Y, uh, it kind of doesn't matter whether you coordinated with the candidate or not. Um, it's also pretty much fact that the IRS is never going to know if you coordinated with the candidate or not. But, you know, technically speaking, all super PACs claims that they claim that they don't really work with the candidates in crafting the message and they do their own research and they're really there because, you know, the candidates interests align with theirs. So, you know, maybe they'll even have former campaign managers of, of candidate X on staff. And, you know, there's, there's virtually uh, no way they're going to get in trouble with the IRS. The question, as I reframed it, though, does the IRS question the billions of dollars that go into, say, the Israeli nuclear 
program at the Weizmann Institute and all of the laboratories in Israel? Does the IRS concern itself with donations that support illegal settlements, even while U.S. presidents in the past have been condemning them? You know, does the IRS object at all to friends of the Israeli Defense Forces funneling $25 million a year to build up recreational facilities on Israeli military bases? No, the IRS inexplicably, toothlessly, does not do anything about any of those issues. It's been so traumatized by being accused of being against one startup Israel affinity group called Z Street that it has completely avoided doing anything within its ballywick to make sure that U.S. tax dollars, uh, which basically, you know, charitable contributions, which raise the tax bill on everybody else, being funneled into all this stuff, they won't look at it. Uh, we sued the IRS for documents subsequent to the Z Street um, fiasco and said, what have you been doing on this lately? And the answer is they're not doing anything on it. They have no documents because they are not tracking what happens to the billions of dollars in charitable contributions that flow from the U.S., again, into the Israeli nuclear weapons program, into the illegal settlements, and up into the IDF's recreational foosball tables and swimming pools. They're not doing anything. I'd like to say another thing about the media buy-in, too, is that I think when the lobby goes after a candidate, they don't usually say it's because of that person's record on Israel. It's a different issue entirely. You wouldn't even know. So that's something to be to look out for, I think, also, if this dark money really accumulates and is used. Yeah, the lobbies, you know, back in the day used to say, oh, hey, we do so much. Israel does so much for the U.S. Since they can't credibly say that, uh, Israel is rarely the selling point, only in the most, uh, you know, differentiated district will they make that argument. Instead, yeah. it'll be, you know, some scandal or some, you know, alleged misappropriation. They, they represent Washington, D.C. They don't represent you or something like that. But and, exactly. and it means that Americans wouldn't buy the argument that it's because of the person's record on Israel. Right. <clears throat> Candidate Y back in the 1990s kicked a dog once. You know, that's Whatever is effective, that's what's coming out. Nothing to do with the true purpose, which is knocking off, again, the human rights or balanced or sensible policy-oriented candidate. You do it through scare, money, and those uh, ads that at the end of them have, this ad was paid for by the super pack of APAC. You know, you'll, never, you'll never get, you'll never really even hear that part. Of it. So I love these questions. They're just rolling in here. Uh, so <laughs> Ramsey asks, how do you navigate the character assassination that follows telling others the truth about this topic? And does it continue because Americans are uneducated about it? Anybody? Well, it's, it's um, you know, it's a lot easier to steer clear of the subject of Israel than to take it on. Uh, if you take it on and if you're in any way vulnerable, so I'm a retired college professor. If I was a beginning college professor, it would be very dangerous for me to have a focus on Israel in the lobby. Uh, you certainly be criticized, targeted, accused of anti-Semitism. Um, so 
people pay, many people pay a painful price, even in their careers. What, uh, you know, really uh, ir- angers me, frankly, is the attacks on students, like people organizing students for justice in Palestine groups. So again, as I said in my little introduction, there's, there's no level to which they won't stoop to attack people and, and wield, uh, weaponize anti-Semitism. This is a terrible thing to do. Anti-Semitism is a real thing. It, it's been around for centuries. It helped bring on a genocide to recklessly and falsely use that charge against people who are, are being critical of our foreign policy and of the influence of a foreign country through its uh, domestic lobby is reprehensible, but uh, they'll, they do it regularly. And, and they, okay. it is a hate group, as Betty McCollum said. Well, one of the differences with the IR, or excuse me, the National Rifle Association, which I think is notable, is it's a real differentiator. APAC has continually been investigated and implicated in espionage against the United States. So, you know, Alec is uh, coming back and saying, "What? What crime has?" you know, APAC committed. Why, you know, why don't you love APAC uh, as much as I do? I'm just paraphrasing, but that's pretty much his point. One of the reasons Americans who are paying attention don't love APAC all that much are these continual uh, sort of self-serving efforts against the United States. And I'm just putting up some FBI files for back when the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee was pushing for preferential trade treatment with the U.S. back in 1984, part of this process, according to the FBI investigation, was the International Trade Commission collecting a bunch of documents from American industry. And most of those industries uh, secretly told the ITC why they were opposed to giving Israel trade preferences. And these were major corporations, unions, and interest groups from California growers to Monsanto to trade unions. And APAC surreptitiously obtained all of that classified information, passed it to Israel, used it to negotiate America's worst trade agreement. It's the worst trade agreement of any bilateral FTA. It delivers most of the preferences to Israel. The amount of trade from the U.S. to Israel is almost zero if you take out the return of Israeli uh, blood diamonds. And it's, a, it's an absolute fiasco predicated on espionage against the United States. In its final closure of the case, the Washington field office had to close it because the Israeli embassy, which was handling this, uh, secretly with APAC claimed diplomatic immunity and just an utter abuse of U.S. law and utter abuse of a trade uh, agreement, which has resulted in hundreds of billions of dollars of illicit benefits to Israel. So that's one reason people who aren't asleep uh, are perhaps aware. And this is only one of three specific incidents involving Israeli operatives and classified information, the most recent being Steve uh, Roseman and Keith Weissman uh, obtaining classified national defense information with Colonel Lawrence Franklin and trying to pivot the U.S. into attacking Iran. Uh, They were caught. 
Uh, Franklin was charged and convicted of espionage. But if it had worked, if it had been just another behind the scenes APEC operation, the United States might have been embroiled in a war with Iran uh, just after it was winding down Iraq. That was certainly the plan. So these are the things, these are the reasons why Americans don't want a massive foreign agent that's in constant contact with a foreign government having so much influence. It costs Americans jobs, it costs them credibility, and it puts the Americans who are in uniform in danger of becoming pawns in foreign intrigues, just like Keith Rosen and Steve Weissman wanted them to do. And the interesting thing about that episode is Stephen J. Rosen, who got booted out of APAC over the affair, they tried to make him into a scapegoat, sued them for defamation, and in his filings with the court claimed very openly, this is what we do. Handling classified information and these sort of operations are just daily occurrences. They're ongoing events at APAC. The NRA doesn't do this. The American Association of Retired People doesn't do this. This is an APAC thing, and it really reveals that the Justice Department was right in 1962, saying this is an organization uh, that needs to register as a foreign agent because that would shut down a lot of this misbehavior. Yeah, I, I think APAC has gotten more extreme uh, over time. Um, so, you know, one uh, in, in the 1980s when Israel invaded Lebanon and conducted myriad massacres and uh, slaughtered thousands of, of people, um, APAC had a propaganda problem because even even in Israel, the war didn't go well, and there were a lot of anti-war protesters within Israel. And for the first time, a lot of liberal Jews in the United States said, wait a minute, I've been pro-Israel, but what are they doing? And so APAC really geared up in the early 80s to respond to that, began to be more active in attacking media outposts like NPR and others who would do critical reports. Um, but the architect of that, Thomas Dine, and others are today outspoken critics of APAC. And if you watch the film made by an Israeli filmmaker, The Kings of Capitol Hill, they're disgusted. The people who organize what I just described, they're disgusted by today's APAC. So it's gotten far more extreme and more controlled by this very small number of Orthodox Jews. Uh, Orthodox Jews are a minority within the Jewish community, but uh, some are very wealthy and very vocal. So I just wanted to make the point, APAC has become more extreme over time. It is really an extremist uh, hate organization at this point. All right. Um, it looks like we're kind of running down here to the end. I just uh, wanted to remind everybody uh, about our annual event that takes place at the National Press Club. Uh, and just uh, screen share that. Uh, in addition to these extra uh, events, Israel Lobby Con 2022 is in March. You can certainly visit israellobbycon.org for information about that. Uh, the wonderful speakers, Sat Jolly, Gideon Levy, Joseph Massad, Hanan Ashrawi, Stephen Walt, Don Wagner, Roger Waters, and some that we haven't even announced yet. So check it out. 
um, we've got all bases covered. If you look in the conference tickets, you know, the Zoom tickets are right up there at, at top. If you're not quite ready to uh, mask up and enter the fray and, you know, get into it at the press club and the reception and the speaker dinner and all of that. But this is an extremely important uh, gathering of experts and a way to meet Americans effectively working to overcome Israel lobby demands to violate international law, undermine freedom of speech, reward Israeli militarism, and constantly denigrate peaceful Palestinian aspirations. Uh, and so, you know, the other thing about this site that we're excited about are, again, all of the extra. Uh, events. So you can go on there and check out the podcast feed, sign up for that. All the archived videos are there. If you want to get up to speed again on, you know, just the utter lack of Arab popular support for any of these so-called Abraham Accords or some of the uh, interesting history of Joe Biden's staunch support for all things APAC policy, um, the Israel lobby agenda, their lobbying agenda, what's failing, what's succeeding, why it's bad for the U.S., um, and historical analyses uh, from both strict American history and Christian Zionist perspectives, uh, Jewish perspectives, and propaganda framework perspectives. I mean, this IsraelLobbyCon.org is just a wonderful place for all of that. And of course, the Washington Report on Middle East Affairs at wormia.org. Uh, be sure to subscribe to the magazine. It's not all on the website. A lot of great stuff is. And of course, irmep.org. So again, um, I, I hope that you found today's event valuable and really thank you for joining us today. Thank you.